I often find that as soon as I light the moxa and the patient has the first whiff, which now with wearing face masks is slightly delayed, but it does eventually come through. But they have the first whiff of, of the moxa smoke and then they go into their deep breath and they sigh out and they say, oh, that's so good. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. Gratitude is difficult. It doesn't march to the war drum beat of discontentment and outrage. Gratitude is quiet by nature. It quiets the mind's list of complaints and instead offers a prayer of appreciation in the present. It's not concerned with the future and all of its demands, nor the past with its flaws and broken promises, but instead invites pause of appreciation into the present moment and the tapestry of entangled and countless relationships and the labors that all allow for a meal, a book, or a conversation in a room with a thermostat set to springtime. Gratitude does not make demands. It's not keeping a ledger. It is less concerned with quantity and more with quality. Gratitude is the antidote to entitlement and keeps us from indulging in narcissism. It's a gentle way to stay reminded of our greed and desire for more of what we crave. It tunes out the litany of comparison that has us competing against our neighbors. Gratitude might be the only prayer that you ever really need. It helps by taking the teeth out of our complaints. It gives a moment of rest from the ever-present struggle for more, and for a moment allows us to focus on what's going right instead of attending to the ever-growing list of grievances. Discontentment is a potent fuel for change. It's powerfully motivating, but it's a toxic fuel that, while it can provide the energy to push for the changes that you'd like to see in the world, leaning on disappointment, frustration, and outrage can leave you bitter and it can leave you resentful. I know from personal experience that discontentment can help you to get a lot done. It can provide the motivation to change a bad situation or help shift an unvirtuous trajectory. But leaning on it long-term will gray your hair. It will disturb your sleep and taint your relationships with an acrid edge of angst. Gratitude does not mean we ignore the problems of the world. It does, however, help us to recognize and remember all the things working well that have brought us into this moment. And in doing so, bring a reminder of what works well in the world and to lean a bit on that. I hated Paul Moxa from the moment I was first exposed to it. The stink lingered like a cheap cigar, the smoke burned my eyes, and my tender lungs staged an instant revolt. The ultra-refined Japanese moxa was a different story, but the rice grain method was something I never mastered. Mostly, I've not used a lot of moxa in my work until I learned a bit of the antake bamboo method from Orinkaviti. This started to open up the world of moxa for me. Sometimes I throw a technique or a method on the junk pile. I have a go at it, but it doesn't sustain my interest. I would have liked to put moxa on that junk heap of discarded methods, 
But when I look at the characters for acupuncture, it's written right there in two characters, needles, moxa. So there is really no getting away from a relationship with mugwort. And I've been grateful to the folks that have joined me here on the podcast to talk about the fiery wool and their passion for using it in practice, as I don't want to shut myself off from something that is clearly as essential to our work as needles. In this conversation with Hannah Swift, we explore her love not just for moxa, but the plant itself, and how in Japan there's a whole culture and embedded economy around moxa production. Hannah brings the spirit of an artist to her work, and her fascination goes beyond its use in clinic. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of the solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. 
Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. I've come away more inspired to use Moxa in some of the ways that we discuss in this conversation. Let's get into this now. Hannah Swift, welcome to Geological. Thanks for having me. I am trying to think of how I came across you. I think it was because of Instagram. That's probably right. I really enjoy the kind of visual and occasionally frivolous nature of Instagram. It shows on your feed. Your feed is fun and delightful. You call it the acupuncture repair kit. Yeah, that's right. It started when I was cycling to work. Um, I had this kind of five mile commute. And so I would on my way home and on my way to work, I would think like, oh, how could I describe acupuncture a bit better? It was when I first qualified. And um, mm. and then I started, I think at the time, Instagram allowed you to record 18 second videos or something very obscure. And I tried to condense an idea from Chinese medicine into 18 seconds and found it really impossible. And I would do it while I was cycling <laughs> and and kind of film myself doing it. And I nearly fell off my bike so many times doing it. So eventually that subsided. But the acupuncture repair kit name is kind of has st- stuck just because it's fun. It came out of that. You know, it's so beneficial sometimes to have a kind of creative restraint. You don't have two minutes. You've got 18 seconds. What can you say in 18 seconds that can connect with people and say something memorable and true exactly. about acupuncture? Yeah. Acupuncture repair kit. Oh, that is, that's just so inviting. Like, ooh, what's in that repair kit? Yeah, and I think, you know, it really links to this idea around our tools and our medicine being really portable. And I had, at the time when I started that account, I had this tiny puncture repair kit for my bike, which was like, I guess, the size of two fingers. And um, in a way, our toolkit for work can fit in the same kind of size of box. You know, we can treat an awful lot of patients with a tin of needles and bit of moxa. It's true. When I travel, I have a, well, it used to be my pencil case when I lived in Taiwan. It's this little fabric box with a zipper. Um, Everyone in Taiwan, for some reason, when they go to school, they have to carry a pencil case. It's got your pens and pencils and erasers, and it's just a popular thing to have. And mine eventually turned into my acupuncture travel kit. I can put in enough needles to get me through whatever the journey is usually. I'm good to go. Yeah, it's so nice. 
Yeah. I often think, I don't know if this has got historical truth, but I think of something a teacher told me once about old acupuncturists having their needles stored against their abdomen behind a leather belt and to kind of charge up the needles with their chi before using them. Mm. Obviously, it was before they were sterilizing needles, etc. But I kind of love the idea that like to really make the those tools just an extension of you, that you just have them on your person all the time. I love it. Yes. I think it's one of the things probably many of us appreciate about the medicine is it's dramatically portable in an age when most things aren't, at least in terms of medicine care. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So again, I, I found you on Instagram. I don't spend a lot of time there, but I, I spend a little because I feel like as a, a presence out in the world, I should spend a little time there, you know, doing research and stuff, you know, for the podcast. So I came across acupuncture repair kit. And for whatever reason, the day that I came across your feed, well, first of all, it became very obvious that you have a love affair with Moxa. We're going to get into that in just a moment. But the thing that really got my attention was a post that you had about Aya and dreams and dreaming. I would like to know more about that. Well, there are lots of things I could say, but I could go right back to before I studied acupuncture. Um, I was making theatre and um, making kind of contemporary performance. And my theatre work became more and more therapeutic um, to the point that I realized that I had to study something therapeutic. Otherwise, I was kind of beginning to enter a field that wasn't my own, that I didn't have skills in. And I made a performance project which was called Night Songs, which consisted of sitting in a place, various places. I did it in pubs, museums, festivals, galleries, um, and inviting one or two people to come and sit with me and tell me about a dream that they'd had and then we would write a song together and record it and the whole thing took 20 minutes and um, some of the songs were just really exquisite and some of them were funny and some of them were rap songs done by eight-year-old boys and some of them were people's first time singing um, sometimes they were intergenerational, so like a grandmother, a mother and a child, um, all singing together about a dream. And sometimes the dreams were quite disturbing. And it was a really potent project. It, there was something about it. Anyway, that's what kind of, it was kind of in that mode of performance making that I realized I wanted to do something therapeutic. And I'd had a very meaningful experience of acupuncture over several years and and it was very obvious that's what I needed to study so it's interesting that I come back now to dreams I've been in practice for five or six years and learning about the effects of mugwort on our mental emotional state and our subconscious um, and our sleep and therefore our dreams is just quite wonderful so yeah, I could, uh, yeah, 
I could say more. Yeah, well, I want to hear more. I want to get into this theater piece here. And I'm using air quotes, performance. I want to get into this here in a moment because as I hear you talking about it, and I'm just saying this now to stick a pin in it so I don't forget it. As I'm hearing you talk about it, I think about how much of the work that we do, in a sense, is performance. We're creating a space. We're inviting people in to an experience. And what is anyone who is doing performance or theater in whatever way you're doing it doing, but opening a space for people to dream in to themselves a little bit more? Yes, so much. So I want to come back to that in just a second. But before I do, can you give me a little more detail on like mud, mugwort and dreaming mm. and and how you use it for sleep or dreams? Or mm. uh, It's funny that you should mention dreams. I, I had an incredible dream last night. I don't dream a lot in a full moon around here. I had a dream last night. I woke up after what seemed like a long time in the dream, and I tried to identify with one character that I thought I was, and I couldn't do it because I was all the characters. I've never had a dream like that. It, it really caught my attention. It's like, oh, all of that. It's all of it. Really expansive. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, dreaming is up for me at the moment. So tell me a little more about mugwort and mm. its connection with dreams and maybe how you use it. And So I think that there's a tradition in European folk medicine of smoking mugwort to enhance visioning and kind of shamanic journeys and dreaming in that sense. Um, I've used it myself just as a tea and um, I run this workshop, I, I do it kind of every so often at the moment, um, where I teach people to make moxa from mugwort that I've foraged locally. And um, the first time I did it, I was, it was in person. It, uh, now, at the moment, I'm doing it online and I send it out. But at the, f the first one was in person and I had this huge teapot of mugwort tea and I just plied everyone with mugwort tea and it was a very good workshop I you know though I say so myself it was fun and entertaining and we made lots of moxa but afterwards I asked for some feedback and the feedback was through the roof it was absolutely astounding and people said this is the best workshop I've ever been to it was absolutely amazing <laughs> and I I thought like, okay, like, oh, that's interesting. I mean, it was a good workshop, but, you know, hold, hold your horses. And then I realized, wow, we've been drinking a lot of mugwort tea and we're all like ever so slightly altered. <laughs> I don't know how people's dreams were after that, but there was definitely a sense of kind of like an uplift. And obviously in that workshop, we'd also done some moxa on ourselves, not using the the moxa we'd just made, but using properly aged moxa. Um, so we'd had this kind of full body immersion in mugwort. And there was, yeah, definitely a sense that everyone's minds was like, were slightly tingly and um, enlivened. So in terms of dreams, it's a journey I'm just beginning really, but drinking mugwort tea seems to elicit quite vivid dreams um, for me. And I know I'm not alone in that. Mm -hmm. 
the uh, connection to smoking it or drinking it and some some kind of uh, shamanic inward experience. I'm going to say it sounds right, even though I haven't seen any of that in our Materia Medica. And again, there's something kind of evocative about your acupuncture repair kit in terms of image and word. So maybe I'm picking up on the dreamy aspect of that. But somehow the idea of mugwort as enhancing that kind of dreaming inner sense. And I try to put it together Chinese medicine wise. And well, it does nourish and tonify the blood. Yep. That's going to have an effect on the Shen. It's going to have an effect on the heart. Exactly. And then I think about the characters in Chinese for acupuncture. Jen Zhou. Zhou. Zhou is moxa. So right in the characters that represent what we do with our medicine. I, yeah, mugwort, it's right there. Yeah, I think that's so interesting. And I don't know why it's happened, but the translation of acupuncture teaching into European and North American colleges and universities has often missed out moxa almost entirely, or it's an add-on, or it's the kind of two days of kind of, this is a very smoky room and yeah, burning lots of quite cheap moxa and having quite a negative experience. Like I, I feel like a lot of practitioners just leave moxa by the wayside um, because it's inconvenient and it's smoky and you have to explain it and it feels more like witchcraft than acupuncture or something. There's, it's quite loaded and um, more and more feel that it's, that it needs to be credited as 50% of the of the medicine. Mm. Mm. Well, it's right in the name in Chinese. So there's one clue. We had a pretty solid education in Moxa where I went to school. Great to hear. Uh, and uh, Yeah, we, yeah. we had a pretty good education in it, plus a lot of Japanese acupuncture teaching. And so there's that whole tradition with the, the little rice grain. For myself, that big stinky pole Moxa, I hated it with a passion. I, 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 do, I do not have good lungs. And I could not be in the room with that shit. Yeah, I think you're not alone. It's hard. It's really hard stuff. I mean, it'd be great if you were in a field or you were doing, you know, treatments somewhere where there was a lot of air flowing through your clinic. <laughs> but it's, it's not ideal for most people's clinic, pole moxa. You know, there was something about the whole pole moxa, I mean, just the use of it, just, I mean, I hated everything about it. And I like the, the little rice grain in theory, and I like getting it, but I don't have the temperament to do it very well. And, and so like, you know, maybe burning little cones on some, uh, on some ginger or something, you know, is, is more my speed. Yeah, I think it's it kind of comes into the realm of craftsmanship in a way. Or mm -hmm. yeah, you kind of like I've just been doing some crochet and it's a little bit like that kind of you're you're working with this kind of woolly fiber and you're making it into a shape and yeah, and it does take time. I did a treatment recently where I only used moxa, uh rice grain moxa. I didn't do any needling and it was interesting because the patient at the end, she said like, oh, usually after your treatments, I feel 
um, a little bit altered and a bit sleepy, but I didn't feel that. I just, over the next three days, I had more energy. So there wasn't that kind of like cathartic sleepiness that can come where you you feel drowsy on the bus on the way home or yeah, your, things just are a bit slower, but she just felt like that there was a bit more energy in her system. Interesting. Well, given that it's considered deeply tonifying, we probably shouldn't be too surprised about that. Yeah. I'm I'm curious, and, and, and again, I'm just sticking a pin in this because I'm going to come back to theater, I promise. Um, but I'm curious first to know how you so fell in love with Moxa. <sighs> Really, I fell in love with Moxa when I was in Japan, and I went there with my dad a couple of times. I, yeah, I thought that while I was there, I would go and find some Moxa producers, and I got in touch with the owner of Kobayashi Ruoho, who make beautiful Moxa that's usually organic or foraged from organic land or wild land, mountain land. Um. I got in touch with him and I said, can I come and visit? And he said, yeah. And I went out to their tiny family-run factory, which is near Nagahama, near Lake Biwa, at the foot of Mount Ibuki. So it's a really mountainous region. And Mount Ibuki is kind of famous and that area famous for producing the best moxa in Japan. And I have a little theory that that might be because the mugwort that grows there is very resilient because the weather is so extreme. So on one side of the mountain, you have snow for a lot of the year and the other side, sunshine. Um, and so any plant that grows there, I think, has to make a lot of wool, which mugwort does very well, to keep warm um, and maybe make more essential oils so it doesn't freeze. Anyway, that's my little theory, and I don't know how true it is. But I went up there and just hung out with them for an afternoon. Um, and just seeing how it fitted into the landscape, um, hearing him describing how it was part of a kind of social economy where fishermen and farmers who are out of work in the winter are involved in the making of moxa. And that in the summer, they harvest it in the kind of gap between crops. So it felt like it was not only a really intrinsic kind of part of being embedded in the land, but also part of the human experience of working with local resources. And to think of it as integrated into a community where there are fishermen and farmers making moxa just astounded me. I suppose in this country my experience of acupuncture is that it's quite fringe it's quite separate from daily or traditional skills um, and just kind of hearing that it was all embedded really um, struck a chord mm -hmm. hello everyone and Cecil Sturman here a working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang which ultimately finances all movement and growth. 
but this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of yang qi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. I've not been to Japan other than to change airplanes, but I, but I have friends that have spent time there. And I, I hear that there are family traditions. They don't do any acupuncture, but they do moxa. They do it well. They've been passing it down from generation to generation. And in Japan, you can go and get a moxa treatment. That's it. They just do moxa. Yeah, you can. Yeah. And then I hear you talk about that. You did that in your clinic. And I'm thinking, wow, I wonder if there'll ever be a day. Maybe I would just do moxa. That's, that's kind of an interesting challenge I could throw out to myself. Could I learn some form of moxa well enough that, that, that I could use it with that kind of uh, capacity? I'm just going to hold that as a question. But this, this phrase that you used, I just want to feed it back to you because it, it really struck me. The moxa and how it fit into the landscape and it fit into the social economy. And, and there's something about, I mean, it could be mo in your case, moxa and, and thank you for that image because now I've got something to really juxtapose that horrible pole moxa that I still hate so much. <laughs> made a big, made a big impression on me and not a good one, that pole moxa. But the idea of thinking about moxa in a landscape, like you think about tea, they talk about tea the same way. Good wines, they talk about it the same way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things I'm increasingly interested in is whether the mugwort that grows where I live is more appropriate for my body as a moxa than something that I import from Japan or China. Um, and I'm interested in that. And um, I took back, so I went to Japan again last year, just at the beginning of the pandemic, actually. And I took back some of my Scottish moxa that I'd made to the owner of Kobayashi Roho. And I showed him. <laughs> he was very unimpressed. <laughs> but he said he was he was kind of encouraging. He's, he was like, yeah, that looks all right. It looks all right. But he kind of was like, our mugwort wool is better here, which I'm sure it's true. Like the fibers are longer. There's just you just get more wool from each leaf. And I think to address your um, your scarring by the pole moxa, um, I you know I think it could be ther very therapeutic to take a pole moxa apart and grind it down and sieve out the bits and take out all of the little stems that are in it and purify that moxa because it's basically very mm -hmm. impure and unprocessed, um, which is why it's so cheap and therefore so common. But it's a uh, kind of only halfway processed so um then you can get a nice product out of it i i love the idea of taking something that i have disliked and seeing if i can distill something 
a value out of it. That's a great idea. And 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 later we're going to talk a, a little bit about how to process Moxa. That's cool. Uh, I want to come back. I want to circle back to theater and uh, your night songs are just so evocative. Again, I, I like I said, I, I've been dreaming a lot with the full moon recently for some reason. So it, it's uh, timely to be having this conversation, hearing you give people an invitation to come and speak their dreams and make a song and then sing the song. Then you know, like just take a little piece of experience and open it up and then express it. I mean, that really sounds to me in some ways what happens in an acupuncture clinic. Yeah. We invite people in. They share something that maybe they, ha they haven't shared somewhere else. Maybe they haven't even shared it with themselves yet. And then we kind of feed it back to them in, in the form of a treatment that inspires something in us that we call a diagnosis and then a treatment plan. But we're kind of, we're kind of feeding them back to themselves. At least that's how I think of acupuncture these days. Absolutely. Someone's it's telling me something about mm -hmm. them and I'm, I'm telling their story back to them, but through a different mm -hmm. medium. Yeah, that's a beautiful way of putting it. There's something very collaborative about that whole process which I think is a bit different from some forms of medicine where you are being done to, you go with your whatever pain it is or problem and the person kind of does a, does a thing on you or at you or in you. Um, and it's very different in our medicine. And I think I, like checking in with the pulses feels like a really nice rhythm or something. There, There is a lot of musicality in in the process of making a treatment of yeah of holding that space and be interesting in a way to like to map it somehow like where you stand in the room and how often you return there and like I go back to my seat and I take notes and then I come over and I check the pulse and then I go back and I probably do a bit of moxa there's a mm. kind of coming and going yeah it's interesting I think and the, there's a cyclicality and sometimes a repeat like a chorus or a refrain going back to the same treatment as you did before tweaking it a bit having some variation I hadn't thought about the musicality piece but it fits definitely fits in your experience with theater in performance oddly enough i was treating a performer today as well so the word performance is is in my mind today and i'm not suggesting that we're like actors in our clinics, but there is, there is something of, of creating a space. I'm curious to know how, uh, there's a question on the tip of my tongue. I'm not sure how to get it off. Um, I think the question is, what would the performer in you have to tell an acupuncturist hmm. about what might be helpful to them in their clinic? Interesting. Well, I think to begin with, to situate myself in that, I always felt very um, ill at ease about who I was as a performer. So more and more, the kind of performance that I learned to do was some kind of form of performing as myself. Um, mm -hmm. And so, and I think I use that in the clinic a lot being able to be authentic and share something that's true but not yeah not always have to like 
be emotionally enmeshed in it, you know, so I can share something that's just like a way in. I can say, oh, I had that problem before. Like, I understand how you're feeling without having to to kind of feel in myself or go into like having had that problem. I can, it can still be about holding the space for the, for the patient. So, and I think learning that being yourself is actually the most sustainable way to be, um, is a really key thing. There's a, yeah, whether you're a performer or a practitioner. Um, I think, there is a role that we step into, but it doesn't have to be inauthentic. You know, like sometimes patients say to me, you seem so calm. You're always, you must always be so calm. <laughs> and I say, of course, I'm not always calm, but you know, I'm in my, I'm in my workplace and I'm, I'm holding this space for you. And that means that I'm calm. It's not, I'm not pretending to be calm. It's just that that role is requiring that calmness. Mm-hmm. Part of the job, one of the job requirements. If we're not showing up with some calm, it's going to be very unsafe for our patients to expose much of anything. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Love the idea of performing as yourself showing up as yourself. What's the job? I show up as myself. And uh, I, I, I think you're right as well that when we really are showing up as ourselves, and, and I'm going to s- say that with the meaning of when we show up with ourselves, like all of ourselves, the part we're comfortable with, the part we're not comfortable with, the part that has experience, the part that is unsure, and uncertain in the moment when we show up with it all with a, a certain amount of comfort. I think it is easier to hold that space and not be so emotionally reactive so that our patients can express as they need to express. And there's plenty of room for them to do that. Uh, but we have to show up as ourselves. It, I was talking with a friend the other day and we we're talking about like at the beginning of anything, you don't really know how to do it. I don't know if you guys say this over in Scotland. There's a phrase here in America. We say, fake it till you make it. And I have always hated that phrase because I don't think we are faking it. I think our job is to do the best we can with what we have, try to learn a little bit. Yeah, and we mirror as animals in our animal selves whatever's Mm -hmm. going on in the room. And if someone's performing a great act of whatever it is, perfection, not having any shadows, um, never being angry, always being calm, or whatever their performance may be, as a patient, you enter a space where you will end up mirroring some aspect of not being true, not being authentic. Um, The more that we can be clear with uh, with ourselves the more we invite clarity, I think, from our patients. Mm. And then I think the interesting thing is that from that clarity, creativity can come, both for us in finding ways through, ways to communicate, ways to treat, but also for the patient finding new ways to think about things. Yeah, so often our patients actually have some answers for themselves 
they just haven't been able to say it to themselves in a way that they can listen. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I'm thinking too a little bit about uh, improv. When I was a kid, I did a little bit of theater. We did a lot of improvisational stuff when I was a kid. And there's that whole idea in improv of you never say no. You always say yes. Yes and. Yes and. And uh, I, I think that works in clinic as well. Yeah, that's interesting. I heard John Hamwee speak recently about intuitive practice. And he said that he always um, says, when he's just finishing up a treatment, he says to the patient, I've got three things to tell you, because he knows that he's got one and two to say, and then he just lets the third one come out on its own. (laughs) it's such a beautiful thing and he just said you know it always comes there's always a third thing (laughs) i love it you put yourself on the spot i have something here i'm not sure what it is but i trust it's going to show up in the moment yeah i'd love that oh my goodness i i may have to try that in my clinic (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean you can always back out of it and say oh actually there were only two <laughs> but yeah. Well, I, I just love that idea of of pushing the edge of the envelope just a little bit. Absolutely. It's like I know this piece, I'm not sure about this piece, but I'm gonna push myself into it. Yeah. 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 And again, you, you go into a void, don't you? I think there's a lot of creativity when you go into a void, as long as it's a mm. safe one. <laughs> yeah. So the void I don't know about other people's experience and I don't know about yours, but when I come up to the void, I get nervous. I get really edgy. The, the unknown. Well, actually I got two things on one hand, the unknown is a little bit exciting. On the other hand, it's absolutely terrifying. Yeah. It depends a little bit what you're going in with, who, who you're going in with, what, what's happening in there. Because sometimes like the void in a treatment, can feel a bit like something that you step into together with the patient and you say like, oh, there's a void. Shall we go in? And sometimes it's not the right time to go in. So you say, mm, actually, we're going to leave that for today. And other times mm-hmm. you there's some courage in the room. And so you step in and then it's creative. And then it's creative. Well, you know, a lot of the myths, all the great myths of the world talk about creativity coming out of a void. Mm. coming out of nothingness there we go again with inviting something in yeah yeah and i think that there's something going back to moxa there's something about how the smoke in the room makes you exist in the same space as the patient kind of you're going through a physiological thing with your patient you're both smelling this smoke which has some slightly psychoactive properties and you're so you're like, let's transform this experience. Let's go there together. Which isn't, you know, I suppose it would be the equivalent of like, oh, I'm going to put this needle in you and then I'm going to do it for myself. Like, let's both have yin tang or something. Um, because of that kind of um, creation of a smoky environment, um, you're kind of maybe in making the theater of a void a bit there is a catharsis and a ritual in that smokiness i think if it's nice smoke mm. not your pole moxa smoke right. no, <laughs> i i have found that very high quality moxa lit with the right japanese incense is luscious yeah 
it, it's really luscious. And, and the idea of breathing in the same scent in the room, that, I mean, talk about bringing people into a sense of rapport. You're both there breathing the same smells, the same smoke. The olfactory sense is the oldest of the senses. And so there's some kind of connection going on that way. I hadn't thought about using moxa as a way to connect and create some rapport. But as we're having this conversation, I can see how that would happen. Mm. And here's the other thing. You talked about people smoking moxa as kind of a shamanic uh, way of you know, moving into a sacred space. And so breathing that moxa smoke in the same room, yeah, maybe there's something going on with our nervous systems here that are bringing them into more of an attunement. Yeah. I often find that as soon as I light the moxa and the patient has the first whiff, which now with wearing face masks is slightly delayed, but it does eventually come through. But they have the first whiff of, of the moxa smoke and then they go into their deep breath and they sigh out and they say, oh, that's so good. And I've heard of people using hypnotherapy alongside acupuncture to get people to relax. And I'm, and I'm sure that that has an amazing effect, but I suppose I use moxa like that. I mean, it's, or I, I don't intend to use it. I don't think, oh, this, per we need to connect more. There needs to be more rapport. This person needs to take a deep breath. I just follow the treatment principles and use the moxa and then that's the out. Yes. So it seems to me, I'm not a, a very intensive gardener, but it seems to me that moxa probably grows in, or I, yeah, Artemisia. I think it grows in a lot of different places, doesn't it? Yeah. It grows all over the world. I think it grows. It grows all over the world. It definitely grows in some bits south of the equator, but it definitely grows in many places in the northern hemisphere and in most cities it grows and you know especially an abandoned building site there'll be moxa there'll be mugwort rather growing there um and by a riverbed that's maybe flooded or th it quite likes really depleted soil and a sunny patch and you'll find it it's so interesting like i i've always had this not always but since exploring the moxa processes I've had this feeling like there must be mugwort everywhere I go and so everywhere I go I kind of keep an eye out for it and there are some places like actually the place I am right this minute I've looked for it miles and I can't find any but I know there's probably some within like 10 steps from the door <laughs> I just haven't spotted it yet <laughs> it's really yes. common it also um uh, adapts really easily to different environments and it morphs. So there are about 400 varieties of Artemisia, so uh, which is the, the family of mugwort. So um, if I was going to start a moxa factory, I would probably try to choose one or two varieties to work with. And that would be like for leaf size and the amount of wool that it creates. But it does vary a lot. Some mugwort leaves are the size of my hand and some are the size of a peanut, you know, and they and that some are really jaggy and some are kind of broader and softer. And in recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. 
In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. Have you found any varieties in particular that lend themselves well to the work that we would use it for in a acupuncture clinic? You know, I haven't studied it enough to have a really good answer for that. But um, what I'm learning about at the moment is kind of the process of making it and drying it. And like one of my recent learning curves was that it's better to dry it and grind it fairly soon after drying it rather than waiting a year and then and then grinding it because it, the leaves go kind of leathery. Um, so that's just, I'm just using whatever moxa I find, mugwort I find growing locally, um, in kind of fairly good places where it's less likely to be exposed to pesticides and fumes. Um, so I'm just learning about it kind of in this practical way. Mm -hmm. Um, and you're wildcrafting it. Yeah. It's also something that if you had a garden and you wanted to grow some of your own medicinals, this would be a great one to grow. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's all over the place. That's great. It's up in northern latitudes, which would make sense given that it's it's warming. So we would expect to find it in a place where it's colder. Now, in terms of harvesting it and turning it into moxa, tell us a little bit about that. So harvesting it is best done just around midsummer or when it's at its fullest height and it's grown all its green leaves, but it's not yet put its energy into producing buds and flowers. It's interesting because the buds are very woolly as well. And there's something about the way it grows where it seems to kind of transfer its energy and its wooliness to what whatever bit of the plant it needs to focus on. So once it started transferring its focus to the buds and the flowers you lose the capacity to get a lot of that good wool from the leaves and the buds are a little bit crunchy so i i have made some moxa with with mugwort i've harvested that has buds and flowers but it's a bit inconsistent in how it burns because there are these crunchy bits you're basically more likely to get burnt unintentionally with an inconsistent fiber so you harvest it when it's ideally at its most consistent which is just before it goes into that process and there is uh, in Chinese 
traditions, there's a festival called the Dragon Boat Festival, um, which is, I think this year it was on the 13th of June or the 14th of June. So there's a tradition around that where people would go and forage mugwort. And there there are lots of people who would collect their mugwort from moxa making around that day. Of course, when you're foraging in Scotland or America or Finland, wherever you are in the world, the seasons are going to vary a little bit. Um, so I think going by that day that's appropriate for Chinese harvesting of mugwort isn't necessarily transferable to here, but it's a quite a good guide roughly. Um, yeah, if you harvest it, then I suppose you're getting it at its utmost yang, really. It's like it's in the height of summer and it's at its, at its kind of tallest and its most robust just before it goes into that next phase of trying to reproduce it itself um so that's when you harvest it and then you dry it i love to dry it um on a washing line or i've dried it in my car before because it was a really hot summer and it dried it perfectly it just kind of baked it to a crisp and it dried it within three days and then i was able to grind it and make the moxa punk um but i dry it in bundles hanging um i feel like it has something of a body in how it is in a bundle i always feel like it's a very sacrificial thing to like, cut a plant and there's something quite magnificent about how it is once it's dead and drying um yeah it really makes you aware of the sacrifice that goes into medicine Mm -hmm. even just on a plant level. So once you've dried it, you separate out the leaves from the twigs. All of the plant can be used. None of it needs to go to waste, but you wouldn't use it all to make moxa with. So you could keep the stems for using as a fire starter, as tinder. Um, they're really good fire starters. And you can then grind it and you sieve out the powder of the of the grinding process. So you separate out the leaf into a fiber, a wool and a powder, and you can keep that powder and use it like as a foot bath or something um, like a skincare product or something. It's kind of got some antimicrobial product um, compounds in it. So it's, it doesn't need to go to waste. Also, I've heard that um, the moxa factories in Japan sometimes feed it to the pigs. Um, so it's obviously, nutritional but i don't think it would be great to consume a huge amount of it though they do use it as um food coloring in japan so uh, is yomogi is the name of mugwort in japanese and a lot of people in japan would would only know it as a food colorant so those like green mm. mochi balls or sweets are often colored with um yomogi because it's probably cheaper than matcha which is the green tea powder it's kind of equivalent and it has, you know, it has a history in Japan in the temples. Um, and a lot of those green mochi balls are sold outside of temples. Um, so there's probably a kind of, again, like this sense of it being part of a circular economy or in, in a system um, that's just kind of reusing all the bits. And so then the part that's left after you get rid of the powder and you put the twigs, the stems aside for your fire in the winter 
now what you've got left over is is basically leaf. Is that correct? So it's it's like a wool. So it's like it's a wool. It's like um, you get the kind of insulation of the plant. Mm-hmm. You just you're separating out the kind of living matter and the insulation. Of course, the the insulation was also living. Um, you're separating out that fibrous stuff which you can see on the bottom of a mugwort leaf it's silvery and fine and hairy so you can feel it even before you've picked the plant you can feel this kind of hairy quality to the underleaf so it's really that part that you're separating out to make the moxa punk and essentially what we want is that wool we don't really want the leaf yeah we want the wool yeah i didn't know that before that gives me a whole different perspective on the situation in some ways that it's it's something other than leaf it's a more refined aspect of it you talk about grinding it up what are you using to grind it with and then how does it naturally separate out between say leaf and wool or is there something you have to do it separates very easily but the more that you grind it so i use a pestle and mortar that I got from Mexico and it's very rough volcanic rock Um, the more that you grind it the more you can separate those things out so if you just ground it for a minute you would begin to get this kind of woolly fiber but it would have a lot of dark green still in it Um, so those moxa poles have a lot of that fiber still in them and they're very dusty when you take them apart they're very dusty um, and basically, if you were to try and make gold moxa from that moxa pole, you would you would get rid of all of that dust. And the dust is what makes it so smoky and contains a lot of the essential oils and volatile compounds that are quite aggressive to our noses. So separating out that stuff from the wool means that you get a finer product that burns more consistently and is... Yeah, and the more you separate it out, the the better quality your product is, basically. And that is done through this iterative process of grinding. Grinding and sieving. I mean, I use really simple kitchen implements. So I just use my pestle and mortar and a sieve. I use a metal sieve because I quite like that I can agitate the wool over the metal. Whereas with a plastic sieve, you don't have that kind of ability to agitate it so much the plastic is too malleable and so my product is probably you know not as refined as it would be if it was being manufactured in Japan but it's kind of it actually has this really beautiful color it's kind of silvery green once it's created and it doesn't age to that gold yellow of gold moxa it more ages to a kind of pale beige so it goes from this kind of pale green silvery green to this pale beige so that's and that aging process is about three years three years so how do you age moxa do you put it in like a container and then hide it away in the dark or bury it in the ground or uh how do you age moxa i i I can remember a japanese acupuncture teacher i had and in between patients, she was always somehow fiddling with her moxa. She was separating this from that, and she she put some of it in one bag and something else in another bag, and then she put in a little slice of dried apple because it was 
good for the moxa. She she was always doing something with her moxa. She was constantly, I guess you could say, refining her moxa. She was she was always attending to it. It was it was like a friend who she was having tea with, right? Always cultivating it. Yeah, that's so lovely. Yeah, but if, but when you say age for three years, how how are you doing that? I mean, I, I think of some teas. You know, you might press them and then put them in a you know cold dry place. How do you age your moxa? So I put it in a paper bag in a jar or a plastic tub or a wooden tub in the dark, and I just let it be. Um, I I often put something in with it, like barley or rice. Um, or these little silica gel packs, um, you know, silica beads that are absorbent, um, just in case there's any moisture that's either in there that needs to be absorbed or that gets in there, um, because I don't want the whole thing to go moldy. Um, really, it's quite rudimentary, and it just, the paper absorbs a bit of the, if if there's any moisture, that would absorb a bit of the moisture, and the tannins I think the point of aging it is so that something happens in the tannins uh, or it releases tannins so um, that kind of acrid smell of the moxipole is partly because it's quite tannin heavy um, and probably hasn't been aged properly and when you get a nice aged moxa it's a really mellow smell it doesn't make you wince or turn away it makes you like ah breathe in and Mm -hmm. yeah, feel calm. Great. I'm so glad we're having this conversation. I, and I've had other conversations with people around Moxa uh, because it's one, it's been one of those, I'm not, it's not a blind spot for me. It's more of an aversion that I've had. Again, the, the smokiness of the pole is, it's just not workable for my lungs. And I don't have the temperament to do little rice grain Moxa. I mean, it, might be a good practice for me to do, but I've got other places I'd rather put my attention. I, I like the idea. Actually, what I think I really like is the idea that I could have a hand in creating something like Moxa that I could then use in my practice in a thoughtful way. Yeah. Yeah. That seems really inviting to me. Yeah. It kind of beds your practice into the land and the people that yeah, the people that you're practicing on kind of ties them in with the whole ecosystem. Yeah, I I kind of relate to what you say about the rice grain, though. I do use rice grain, but I am more inclined to use chinetsku, which is like the bigger cones that that, that means heat perception moxibustion. So um, I ran this study trip last year in Japan and we were taught by Sasaki Sensei, Tomoko Sasaki, she's called. She's a wonderful practitioner. She runs a mainly pediatric clinic in Tokyo, and she uses Chinetsku almost exclusively. So her treatments are so speedy to watch. They're incredible. Um, she's, she's rolling and burning and putting them out all in kind of one swift action. She's an amazing practitioner to watch. Um, and so when you feel it getting warm, you say it's getting warm and then the practitioner takes it off. That's the, that's the mode. So there's not a burn. There's not the rice grain style burn or sesame seed style burn. Um, so it's just warming. And because you're only using 
the insulating property of the moxa to stop the patient from getting burned. There's this very direct penetration of the heat. It goes straight in. And so if you warm up, say, two points on the leg on the stomach meridian or any meridian, you're just pushing the warmth in and it wakes up the whole channel. And so that mode is it's very kind of rudimentary in a sense. It's not a super refined kind of act. And it's probably quicker than massage. You could get the same effect maybe through massage of warming the channel or warming the points. But it's just kind of quick and it works and it's very effective. And it's not that yeah, tiny, fiddly process. You're making quite a big thing the size of the tip of your thumb and putting it on a point. Okay, so it's about the size of the tip of your thumb. That's a good-sized piece of moxa. And when you pull it off, are you just pulling it off with your fingers? Do you have like little tweezers? What is your method for that? I suspect in Japan they probably pull it off with their fingers because they're just so incredibly skilled with it at this point. And I do that too. (laughs) Um. I just pull it off with my fingers. You pull it off with your fingers. I, it's so insulated. I think it's actually, it's not so much about skill. It's more about believing that you're not going to get burned because you pull it off. You make a little cone the size of the tip of the end of your thumb. It looks a bit like Mount Fuji. You know, it's kind of pointy. It, so you light it at the top and it burns down and down and down. And then the patient says, it's warm. And you've got maybe half a centimeter of unburned moxa underneath some moxa which is smoldering but the actual outer edge of that moxa has turned to ash so you've you're not going to be touching red hot embers you're just touching ash and unburned moxa punk and then if you just do it quickly you lift it up Mm -hmm. and you plonk it in your bowl of water and out it goes with a nice sizzle and um it's very undramatic, actually, for your fingers. Though sometimes my fingers get slightly brown and I look like a heavy smoker. That's probably the oils from the moxa coming out. The unused portion of that moxa, can you dry it out and reuse it or is that it? I know that some practitioners do use it in other forms. So like you'd use it in a moxa box or like Oren Kivites, um bamboo. Oh, put it on take, yeah where it's not coming into direct contact with another patient. I'm not really there yet. I'm very happy for it to go on the compost heap. (laughs) Um, I think, you know, one of the things that I really like is the circular nature of using moxa, that I can harvest it from where I live and I can process it at home and I can use it. Honestly, I'm still using Japanese moxa that I buy from factories at the moment. Um, in my clinic I've not got into using my own moxa in my clinic just because I feel like I'm still in the learning days of how to do that and it's a three-year process so I'm you know I have got some moxa that's five years old that I made five years ago but I'm it's such a small amount and I'm just using that on myself you know just I want to get to grips with it really as a material before I start using it in my clinic. But one of the nice things is that you can use the ash um, from moxa as a kind of deodorizer, or um, it, it's um, it's a it dries things out. So you can use it to kind of suck out things that are like pustular, or you can use it as a face mask, or that kind of thing. So 
um, that's a nice circular part of it as well. Though, again, I mean, I am gathering up a little jar of my moxa ash, um, but I haven't kind of established a real ritual with it or a practice. And I probably at the moment would only use that on myself because I'm using myself as a guinea pig. Yes. Well, it, it's delightful to hear you talk about this uh, from finding it, going out and being able to scout it, and then harvesting and creating it. That just it just gives such a uh, a dimensionality to this thing. And I didn't realize that 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 the grinding process is is what would separate the leaf from the wool, and your goal is to is to sift out the wool. So. I know a little bit more about Moxa now. I appreciate that. Thanks so much. Anything else that you would like to share with the geological listeners before we say goodbye for today? Well, just to say that I'm planning a study trip back to Japan for acupuncturists mm. for autumn 2022. And my website is yellowempress.net. And so people can sign up to the mailing list there and find out more about that. Terrific. We can put a link on the show notes page so people can find that directly. And any any other resources you might like to share, we can put them over there as well. Brill, thank you so much. Terrific. Well, thank you for this time today. Thank you. It's been great. One of the gifts of COVID for me has been to realize how vitally important it is for us humans to be able to share physical space with each other, literally breathe the same air, which we're encouraged not to do here in this time of pandemic. I've experienced firsthand how our nervous systems are built to function and regulate themselves when we're in the presence of other people. Isolation gives rise to so many ills. I appreciated Hannah's thoughts about how the smell of moxa creates a kind of intimacy as patient and practitioner breathe in the smoke and the scent of burning mugwort. Especially as the past almost two years has had us in a state of hypervigilance about being in the same room with others, this gentle aspect of experiencing the smoke and the scent of moxa could be a subtle yet connective part of a treatment. And as our medicine is so hands-on, there is something inviting about making and curing our own moxa. I wonder if I'd have felt differently about moxa if my first experience of it had not been that crappy pole moxa. And as it's sliding into winter here, I'm looking forward to experimenting with some of the other dialects of moxa. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm-hmm.